Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Happy New Year, everybody. This is Peter Schiff, and this is my first podcast for 2015. And, you know, it doesn't really feel like 2015. You know, I I can't hydrate a pizza. I definitely don't have uh, a hoverboard. I don't have uh, self-lacing sneakers, and my jacket doesn't size adjust by itself. I definitely don't have one of those gadgets that walks your dog for you, that just hovers around and self-walking dogs. There's no Mr. Fusion uh, in, in my kitchen, that's for sure. Uh, I can't hang upside down, suspended uh, from my back. I remember that scene. Um, Unfortunately, we still have lawyers, and we still need roads, and those roads are in need of repair. Who knows when we might have flying cars? Of course, I'm referencing Back to the Future Part 2, and it's, it's hard for me to believe that I'm now living in the year that was depicted in that Robert Zemeckis film, Back in the 80s, I still remember watching the original Back to the Future uh, 1 when it came out. Time sure does fly. Although I guess we have a few things that maybe they didn't predict. We got uh, uh, the smartphones and text messaging and and, and a few uh, things that uh, they didn't get. Well, I think in that movie, there were a number of things uh, that they might have gotten right. But it just shows you, you know, when you think about what the future is going to be like, Many of us, uh, you know, it, it's 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 really hard to imagine what may or may not uh, be developed. And I think for a lot of us, just seeing a year or two into the future, I think is often very, very difficult, let alone trying to look 30 years into the future and, and postulate on what they're going to happen. I remember my dad telling me when he went to the 1939 World's Fair, <clears throat> uh, one of the things that everybody assumed that they had a, you know, an exhibit of the future. And I, I forget when, what year it was. It was probably like the 1980s. I don't know what, what year they were predicting they were looking at back then. But my dad tells me he remembers that they had big dioramas, you know, they, they of neighborhoods and everybody had helicopters in their driveways. So people have always been thinking about flying cars, but I guess the helicopter was a vel- relatively new invention. And people figured that, well, everybody's just going to fly around in helicopters. No one's going to actually have an automobile we're all going to have a helicopter. I can imagine the accidents that would be taking place if we all tried to fly around in helicopters. They are relatively difficult uh, and very expensive still to uh, be able to afford a helicopter. But I want to talk about what's been going on in the markets the last few days. You know, normally the end of the year, the last day of the year, the first day of a new year, they're typically positive days in the market, especially when the market has been trending higher. Not so this year. We had a very big sell-off for the final day of the year. I think the Dow was down about 160 points on Wednesday. 
And we we got a snapback rally early in the morning on Friday. But by the end of the day, the market had sold off. The Dow was still positive by about nine points after having been down maybe 70, 80 points at, uh, at one point during the day. But the NASDAQ still finished down. The S&P finished lower. So S&P lower the last trading day of the year and the first trading day of the year. We got a lot of economic news that came out on the Wednesday and the Friday. Almost all of it bad, which again is par for the course. We get bad economic news and then nobody seems to care. We got the initial jobless claims that came out on Wednesday, a day early because uh, of the market closure for the New Year's Day holiday on Thursday. Initial jobless claims rose a greater than expected 17,000. 298,000 is where they stand, just below 300,000. But what's more significant to me is if you look at a trend, we have had falling uh, unemployment claims now going back for several years. That trend to me seems to be over if you look at the chart. We're back at levels that we were at six, seven months ago on claims. So we are no longer falling. And to me, it looks like the trend is reversing. And I think that you're going to see a substantial pickup in unemployment claims in 2015. We might be back above 400,000, not only get back above 300,000, but by the end of the year, we might be above 400,000 weekly unemployment claims as businesses continue to shed workers when the recovery, the promised recovery fails to materialize. Also, on a Wednesday, we got Chicago PMI, right? It unexpectedly dropped to 58.3. Again, unexpectedly is the key word because nobody expects the bad news. It just happens anyway, right? They were expecting 60.8 for the PMI, and instead it came in at 58.3. That is the lowest level in five months, and it's the second month in a row uh, where we have come in below expectations. So those were two bad uh, releases that came out on Wednesday, But on Friday, we had the trifecta. We had three reports. Three of them were bad, all three. First, we got um, December PMI, the manufacturing index, dropping for the fourth consecutive month to 53.9. That was the lowest level since January 2014. Production was weak. Employment was, was weak. So everything about the report was negative. The expectation, though, uh, it, it, it was still for a decline, but the decline ended up being a little bigger than what had been expected, although that might have been the best of the reports. Construction spending for November unexpectedly, again, there's that word, fell 0.3%. It's the first monthly drop since June. Analysts had been anticipating a 0.5% gain, but instead they got a 0.3% decrease But probably the weakest number of them all was the December ISM. That index fell uh, to 55.5. It was supposed to fall a little. Instead, it fell a lot. This is the lowest level since June, and it's the biggest miss uh, of expectations since January. Again, that was the the polar vortex. So we get three out of three uh, negative economic reports. You know, the stock market was positive this morning, up over 100 points. It's possible that all of that negative economic data took its toll 
on the stock market and sent it lower. But not so for the dollar. The U.S. dollar shrugging off all of the negative news and having one of its best rallies uh, in some time across the board strength against the euro. The Canadian got crushed. I don't remember seeing the Canadian dollar down this much. It was down at least one and a half percent of the day. Big drop in the Canadian dollar, but the the dollar rose against the yen. It rose against the Aussie, the Kiwi, the Scandinavian currencies. The dollar was strong across the board, despite all of this weakening economic data. The Canadian dollar, of course, also being weighed down by the drop in crude oil, which extended its decline. We closed around 52.50, new lows on the move for the price of crude. You know, everybody is worried about the impact that energy, falling energy prices will have on the Canadian economy, but nobody is worried about the impact it's going to have on the American economy. We've got a big oil industry, too. I mean, we're not a net exporter like Canada, but we have pl- many states that are net exporters. We have a lot of big states uh, that our economies are very, very dependent on energy, but we have a large energy industry that has been built up predominantly over the last few years, responsible for all the decent job creation, And all of that is now in jeopardy, yet nobody seems to worry about that with respect to the U.S. dollar, but they worry about the Canadian dollar. But the real catalyst for the dollar rally were comments made at a a press conference with Draghi, the head of the ECB. And this is all he said, right? I'm just going to quote word for word what Draghi said, quote, the risk that we don't fulfill our mandate of price stability is higher than it was six months ago. Now, so what? Now, what does he mean by that, by price stability? He means inflation of just under 2%. Again, that is their definition. Their new definition of price stability is prices that rise by just under 2%, right? Just under. So I guess it's 1.9% is if prices go up by 1.9%, you have price stability. If they go up by 2%, you don't. If they go up by 1.5%, you don't. There's a magic number there that they've divined from the heavens as to what is price stability. Although, you know, you would think that price stability meant that prices were actually stable as opposed to rising by 1.9% a year. But no, price stability means prices going up, right? That's a, a George Orwellian concept. But that's all he said is that the risks that we don't fulfill our mandate is higher than it was six months ago. Well, what were the risks six months ago? I don't know. And now it's somewhat higher. Maybe it's still a remote possibility. Then he said this. Um, He said, while limited, the risk of deflation cannot be entirely excluded. So he's saying the risks of deflation are limited and they cannot be entirely excluded. Does that mean that they think that it's that it's likely? No, it sounds like there's a remote possibility that we might have deflation. We can't entirely exclude the possibility, right? And then he said, we have to act against such risks. And I suppose those words were what set the currency markets rolling because, of course, the dollar had a huge run because, aha, Draghi is promising um, more QE, sovereign QE. Well, No, he isn't. I mean, how is that statement any different than any of the other statements that Draghi has been making over the years? Right. He talks and talks. And how many times is the dollar going to rally and the euro going to sell off on the same promise? Yes, we, we, we might do QE. We might do QE. We might do QE. But meanwhile, 
you have Germany basically saying over my dead body. The Germans don't want uh, full-on sovereign QE. They don't want the ECB loading up on Greek debt or Italian debt or Spanish debt. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't think the Swiss, I think the Swiss have a big dog in this hunt now, now that they own so many euros and have pegged their currency at 120 uh, to the euro. They stand to lose considerably if there's sovereign QE in the eurozone because they have all these euros that are going to be losing value and they're going to have to buy more. They're going to have to really back up the truck. I I mean, the truck is already backed up, so they're going to have to get a bigger truck to buy all those euros. So I do not think that uh, full-on QE is going to happen in the eurozone. Again, I think it's just talk, just the way we talk about raising interest rates, uh, even though the economic data is rapidly decelerating. You know, all of the coverage that I'm hearing on the news about the the, e- the economic numbers coming in week is all, you know, the glass is half full. People are saying, well, yes, the numbers are lower than we'd expected, but the economy is still growing. Yes, it's growing a little bit more slowly than we thought, but it's still growing. Well, you know, if we're going to go from growth to contraction, we have to slow down first. Yet everybody is assuming that these trends that are now entrenched are not going to continue. If you see this sharp deceleration in growth, how do you know that it's not a prelude to an actual contraction? But everybody is just jumping to the opinion that it's not. In fact, almost all the articles I'm reading, certainly on Bloomberg, are rationalizing and explaining away why we don't have to worry about this bad news, why it really isn't bad, right? Uh, And they're making excuses, but they don't do that when the news is good. They never tell you, well, ignore that. That's just an outlier. Uh, You know, the news is, no, no, they, they, any, any kernel of good news, they embellish, they jump all over it. And then if you get some bad news, well, they just completely dismiss it as if, uh, you know, it's just an aberration, something that, you know, statistical anomaly. So that is the bias that has been built in to, uh, to the media. One significant, I think, development uh, over the last couple of trading days is the gold market. I mean, the price of gold uh, was relatively firm. Gold stocks in particular, the last trading day of the year of 2014 and the first trading day of 2015, gold stocks were up. In fact, gold stocks were probably the best performing stocks during those uh, couple of days. Oil stocks, as a matter of fact, they actually rallied too, despite the, the weakness in, in crude oil. But think about the year for gold, because gold in 2014 was basically flat. It might have been down slightly. I mean, not even 1% against the dollar. It was a pretty much of a, a flat year for gold in dollar terms. It just treaded water. But if you remember all of the forecasts that were being made by the supposed experts at Goldman Sachs and Society General. They were looking for gold to be 1,050, 1,900 and something, right? Everybody was looking for a terrible year for gold. Instead, you know, it it hung in there. And in fact, if you compare gold to other assets, it did quite well. I mean, yes, you were better off if you bought U.S. stocks than gold and if you bought U.S. bonds, but you were better off buying gold than stocks and bonds in just about every other country on the planet, the gold market outperformed all the European stock markets. You know, most of the major stock markets uh, did not beat gold. Hardly any of them did. Uh, also, the currencies. I think that gold is not a currency. I think gold is money. 
But if it were a currency, I think it was, you know, maybe the second strongest currency uh, of 2014 behind the U.S. dollar. Right. So people in any country, if they put their money in gold, are much better off than if they left their money in a bank account or they invested their money locally in the stock market or the bond market. They were better off in gold. So, you know, I think that all these negative forecasts didn't come true. Yes, gold didn't have a big rally in dollars, but it had a stealth bull market because it rallied in every other currency. In fact, we're very close to significant breakouts in some key currencies like the euro and the Swiss franc. I mean, if gold goes above a thousand euros to the ounce, that's a significant breakout. A, not only would it be a new uh, 52 week high, uh, but it would be a chart breakout. And we're right there. We're at like 991. So we need about a nine euro move up to break out. On the Swiss franc, the level is 1200. And you know, the Swiss uh, to euro peg is uh is is 120 so that would make sense and we're right below we're like 1180 something uh swiss franc price for gold and if we break out of those levels i think that's very very significant and i don't think that you're going to have gold in major bull markets in every currency and it not include the u.s dollar so if we do get a big breakout in gold in terms of these other currencies and looking at it you know in terms of the the canadian dollar uh, there, I think maybe around 1400. I forget the levels. Uh, but I think this is going to be very, very bullish for gold. And again, gold is not going to just be in a bull market uh, in euros and Swiss francs and yen and Aussie dollars and have the U.S. dollar uh, the only the, the only uh, market in which gold is not rising. See, normally in a strong dollar environment, which we certainly had in 2014, and certainly the latter half of 2014. Normally, when you have a strong dollar, you have a weak gold price. That is not the case now, which again, to me, what it says is it's not really a strong dollar. It's just that all the other currencies are weaker than the dollar. And so the dollar is temporarily less weak than these other fiat currencies. But again, this is all based on expectations, and the expectations are wrong. It's based on the false idea that the U.S. has a genuine recovery that can withstand higher interest rates when it does not, and that uh, Europe and Japan and other countries uh, are in, you know, their, their economies are a disaster, and as a result, they're going to do quantitative easing, and that quantitative easing is going to weaken their currency. And I think people are overestimating the possibility or probability of QE outside the United States and dramatically underestimating the probability of QE4 in the United States. And of course, if I'm right, if the price of gold does break out in all these currencies, including the dollar, then I think we have significant more upside in gold mining stocks. You know, if you, you actually look at the gold mining industry, since 2005, the price of gold has tripled since 2005. Yet during that time, most gold stocks are down by 50% or more. I mean, think about that. The price of the product that they're selling has tripled. Not many businesses have been able to triple the price that they sell their products for. Yet despite that, the, the value of the businesses that produce a product that has tripled in price have collapsed. Now, of course, part of that is because not only did the price of gold triple, but the cost of gold mining uh, tripled as well. 
maybe more. You know, ironically, they claim there's no inflation, but certainly uh, something is resulting in significantly higher cost of mining. But, you know, those costs have come down significantly in the, the final quarter of 2014 because oil prices have come down a lot. And that is a very big component. Energy is an important component of mining costs. And uh, you have had this big rise in the price of gold relative to the currencies in the countries where gold is mined, which means their labor costs. You know, if you're if you're buying Australian labor or Canadian labor, you know, there that is a lot cheaper now relative to the price of gold. So the fundamentals have really improved. But, you know, I mentioned uh, back to the future at the beginning of the podcast. You know, one of the things one of the that hasn't changed at all since uh, Marty McFly went back to the future is the price of gold stocks. I mean, you can take a look at major gold stocks like Newmont Mining in the United States or you know, Barrick and these stocks are at the same price they were when Marty McFly got into his DeLorean in the mid-1980s and came to 2015, right? All the other changes that have taken place uh, since 1985, yet the price of these gold stocks has remained the same. So it really shows you how undervalued uh, these companies are at the moment. And I think it really is a historic opportunity when it comes to that sector, because you have this incredible uh, confidence and faith. I mean, that is probably the biggest bubble. I talk about the bubble in stocks or real estate or bonds or the dollar, but the real bubble is in confidence. You know, it's all one big con game and people just have this incredible confidence in central bankers and in fiat currency and in governments and their abilities to, to micromanage and stimulate the economies. And, 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 and that is the bubble that needs to prick where people completely lose faith and confidence in these institutions and in the fiat money uh, that they generate. You would have thought that 2008 and the financial crisis would have been enough, but no. And that's because they were able to bail themselves out uh, with one final round of massive stimulus. But this is it. This, when this bubble bursts, there are no more rabbits that they can pull out of the hat. And people, you can look what's going on in Russia right now and, and see the ruble down sharply. And, you know, the Russian economy is struggling. They've raised interest rates up to 17%. This is just a, a peak into what's going to happen in the United States. A small little dress rehearsal for the main event. Because the real currency crisis is coming to America, right? It's, it's, it's it, you know, not Russia. I mean, they're, they're going through something. And certainly the Russians uh, who bought gold, uh, gold is at a record high in terms of the ruble. So gold has had a, a very strong year in, in rubles. In fact, gold has protected people all around the world from the loss of purchasing power of their currency. And that's what it does. Right? Uh, but I think the real crisis is going to be in the U.S. And think about this, because if the world is losing confidence in the ruble, and as a result, the Russia has to raise their interest rates to 17%. Imagine what happens in the United States when the world loses confidence in the dollar. Can we match that? Can we pay people 17% to hold our, our debt? Not, not a chance. The amazing thing is that Russia can afford the 17% because they don't have a lot of debt. 
We have so much debt, we can't even afford a fraction of 17%. We can't afford 7%. We can't even afford 1%. That's how broke we are. And the irony of it is the Russian uh, ruble, if you look at it fundamentally, has got more backing it up than the dollar. So if people can lose confidence in the ruble, considering that they actually are in a better position than the United States, both their the fundamental value of their currency and their central bank's ability to defend it. We have no ability. If there really is a run on the dollar, America can't do anything about it. We'd count, we, we would need China to do something about it, or Japan, or Europe. We would have to have the rest of the world come in and bail us out. Right? Nobody is is aiding the Russians. You know, they're doing it on their own. Uh, but if the dollar came under attack, we would we would we would have to rely on foreign countries to bail us out. We would be, it would be totally impossible for us to defend our own currency. But right now we don't have to because everybody is buying the dollar because again, everybody is piling into this trade based on false expectations, but they were making the same trade. They were doing the same thing in 1999. Look how strong the U.S. dollar was in 2000. The dollar index was up to 120. Yes, now it's up above 91, 91 and a half, but it's not nearly as high as it was in 2000. But then it went on an eight-year decline. The dollar index went from 120 down to 70, a new record low. Because all of the optimism regarding the U.S. economy during the dot-com era turned out to be wrong. And I think the disconnect is greater now. I think the optimism is even more wrong. I think the U.S. is on the precipice of a much worse uh, economic contraction than the one we had in the early 2000s. And I think the economy is in far worse shape, structurally, fundamentally, financially. And so if the dollar can have that kind of decline between 2000 and 2008, I can only imagine the magnitude of the decline uh, that's coming. And people need to prepare for it. Let me finish up by speaking a little bit about Bitcoin and haven't talked about the digital currency since uh, I spoke about the potential for tax loss selling in Bitcoin. And maybe we had some of that when I spoke about it. I think we were about $340 per Bitcoin. This morning, I noticed that Bitcoin's traded below 300. I'm looking at the Bitstamp website. The morning low thus far is 297 per Bitcoin. We're right now trading at 302. Uh, so we're down over 4% now on the day. And, you know, even though 2004, 14 was a year where a lot of currencies lost value against the dollar. Uh, they all gained value against Bitcoin. You know, even if you were in Russia and you were worried about the ruble, if you decided to, to buy Bitcoin with your rubles, you're worse off. The ruble has actually lost or the Bitcoin has actually lost more purchasing power than the, the ruble. Uh, so and, you know, if you were in America, obviously, and if you were worried about QE and a weakening dollar, I mean, that didn't happen. But if you bought Bitcoin, uh, you lost much more of your purchasing power than you would have had you bought any other uh, fiat currency, a traditional fiat currency. The digital currencies uh, did a much poorer job uh, than the fiat currencies of retaining their value. Gold did a pretty good job. I mean, in fact, gold did a very good job in 2014. Anybody anywhere in the world who was worried about their currency and if they use their currency to buy gold, they are better off today for having bought gold, with the exception of the United States, where it's about a push. Uh, but if you bought digital currency, if you bought Bitcoin, 
uh, you are in a much worse position than had you just stayed in your respective fiat currency. And I think that in 2015, despite the fact that there's still a lot of optimism out there in the Bitcoin community for a bounce back, I just think we're going to have another down year. I think that, you know, there's a PR problem now. You have a lot of people that bought Bitcoins uh, in the last year who have significant losses. They've lost half their money, two thirds of their money. Uh, They're a little gun shy. And I think it's going to be hard to attract new, uh, you know, new people into the Bitcoin community, given, you know, the bad experience now that so many people have had with Bitcoin. I know a lot of people say the price is irrelevant, but I think price is extremely relevant. You know, certainly when it comes to the potential of a market, you know, a lot of companies in 2014, and that was one of the big successes, and maybe Bitcoin being a victim of their own success, a lot of companies decided to accept Bitcoin. And certainly they were tempted by the high purchasing power because all the people that had Bitcoins had a lot of money to spend. Now they have a lot less uh, because the currency has gone down. Uh, Companies like Overstock, which uh, began earlier in 2014 accepting Bitcoin, uh, their sales are far below what they had originally estimated their sales were going to be. Now, part of the reason is because the Bitcoin customer is less affluent because the Bitcoins that he has are worth less now than they were in the beginning of the year. And so, you know, you can't buy as much stuff. But I think what's going to happen to commerce in the digital currency uh, in 2015 is if the price continues to fall, and let's say the price gets cut in half again, let's say Bitcoin goes down to 150 I think a lot of people are going to be reluctant to spend their Bitcoins because they're going to be hopeful that the price will go up, right? If you paid $700 for your Bitcoin and it's only 150 you might not want to spend it, right? You're just going to sit and hope that it comes that it comes back. And if other people don't want to buy because you know they don't want to buy at 150 what if it goes to 75 right? So I think the commerce could really slow down. And as the commerce slows down, then, you know, you're not going to get as many companies that think it's worth the, the effort to, uh, to start accepting Bitcoin because the sales that they're going to have to the Bitcoin community are not going to be nearly as lucrative as they would have been if the prices were a lot higher and more and more people were continuing to adopt them. And I know that they, the Bitcoin community continues to talk about how great it is and how efficient it is uh, as a method of payment. And all of that is true, assuming you already own Bitcoin. But if you don't own Bitcoin and you're simply going to buy Bitcoin to facilitate a payment, well, then I think it's more expensive and more risky than just using PayPal or using uh, a credit card or a debit card, which you can already do on the Internet. Yes, there's a fee there. But the fee is not as high as the fee of going in and buying uh, some Bitcoins for the sole purpose of spending them. Because now you have the added risk of how much your Bitcoins might go down in value between the time you buy it and the time you you spend it. And there are some fees, you know, you, when you go and buy these fees, the exchanges do charge something. They don't provide the service for absolutely nothing. Uh, so I think that a lot of the appeal is going to be lost. Meanwhile, you know, you've got a lot of these companies, uh, startup companies, uh, venture capitalist companies that have uh, been starting up all based on the supposed appeal of Bitcoin. 
but the currency itself is losing uh, losing support. Meantime, again, there are hundreds and hundreds of other uh, digital currencies out there uh, that are stealing some of the Bitcoin thunder. I mean, you don't have it's not like you just have one digital currency. If you want to buy a digital currency, there's all sorts of currencies that you could you know take a shot at. And so they're all out there. There's a lot of competition. The supply is growing. More and more are being mined. And I, I think the appeal uh, is going to be lost. And, and, and a lot of people think, again, they say price is irrelevant. I think it was the price. It was, this, it was the meteoric rise in the price of Bitcoin that made it so exciting. And it was the expectation of future gains that was enticing people into Bitcoin. People thought they were going to get rich. I know initially the appeal of the cryptocurrency was some libertarians and free market guys. They wanted a currency that wasn't you know, manipulated by a central bank. They wanted privacy uh, and things like that. But all that has been lost. I think it was all overshadowed by the greed associated with the promise of you know, riches for anybody who uh, got into the Bitcoin. And which is why it, the whole thing took on the aura of a pyramid or a Ponzi scheme where everybody was hyping it up and the people that owned it need to convince new people to buy it because that would in- increase the value of their own coins and they would look to cash out. And uh, and so, but I don't think that the bubble is totally burst yet uh, because I think, you know, we still have a lot of hope. And then once the price really starts to tumble, then I think you're going to see uh, Gresham's Law kick in. I mean, initially, people are going to be reluctant to sell. They're going to want to hold on to their Bitcoins. So commerce will dry up because people will be hoping that the currency comes back. But when it falls far enough, then people will give up hope and it will be more about get me out at any price. And, you know, the Gresham's Law, good money chases out bad money if Bitcoin becomes the example of bad money where anybody that has bad money wants to spend it, right? So now people will be rushing to spend their Bitcoins uh, before they lose value. They'll be holding on to their other currencies, right? But they'll be putting more and more Bitcoins into circulation. But then that'll just simply drive the price down even faster as everybody wants to spend it. And that's what you know, you, you get to pick up in the velocity too, right? Because if you get a Bitcoin, you better get rid of it before it loses even more of its value. Uh, and so I think, unfortunately, that is um, an event that we might see in 2015 or 2016. I don't know how long the whole thing is going to take to play out. But anyway, hey, that is it. Uh, again, I want to wish everybody a very happy new year. I think it is going to be a very volatile 2015. I think it's going to be full of a lot of surprises for a lot of people. I do not think this year is going to go anywhere near the way the vast majority of people believe. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? 
If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.